Well, for some of you visiting today, my name is Jim Jackson. Our preaching pastor, Marty Brown, is on vacation, much needed, and so I get to be with you today, and we're just happy that you're with us today. I still remember the first refuge camp I ever went to. We hiked through the jungle. We were being taken to a place that, for a group of people in a particular village who had become followers of Christ, they denounced their old religion, trusting Christ, and because of that, the townspeople ran them out of their village. And so they had to go through the jungle, and they found a particular plot of land that a believer owned and allowed these folks to take up residence. And so when we got there, See, I love backpacking and I love camping. This was not backpacking and this was not camping. These people had absolutely nothing. In fact, if you've never seen, you ought to sometime, maybe even this afternoon, Google refugee camp and see what millions of people around the world live in. Refugee camp means that you have been run out of where you live for some particular reason. What I'm talking about today is because a person has taken up the name of Christ and because that goes totally against what the people in that particular area believe, they would run them out. Now imagine with me, because I'm trying to set you up as we're going to read this passage in just a moment. Imagine being a person that in the middle of the night is woken up and told to get out of your house You don't have time to pick up anything. Some refugees actually leave their home totally naked because they don't get they don't give them time to get dressed. They don't give them time to like pick up a few things to pack their suitcase, but run them out of their home with their lives and their children and nothing else. Absolutely nothing, nothing to sleep on, nothing to eat nothing to cook with, and just run off into the woods or the jungle or the desert and just go live somewhere else that you don't know. Imagine what that would be like because there are millions of people in this world that live like that. And imagine what it would be like to have to leave everything behind and have nothing. And then for someone that you know who loves you, write a letter And there you get to be together and and you get to read this letter together. And so I want you, if you will, because we've been reading through the Bible together, we have just finished James. And so I want you, if you will, turn to James chapter 1. And with kind of that mentality in mind, I would hope that just for a little bit you would think of yourself as a refugee. Oh, by the way, you and I are. If you're a believer in Christ, this world's not our home. You and I are exiles. We don't belong here. We are pilgrims. We're wanderers in this world, so to say. And so here, the Spirit of God, writing through James, is going to write to these particular people who have been scattered. They have been driven out of their homes. They no longer have a place to live. They are scared. All these things are going on. And James, through the Spirit of God, writes to them. Would this sound odd to you if you have just lost everything you had and all of a sudden someone in your little group who had just received this letter writes, James, a servant of God 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who have been scattered because of the persecution greetings. Can you imagine? You're waiting for words of comfort. You're waiting for words to sustain you in all that you have lost. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. He's unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. The flower falls and the beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Because can you imagine these particular people, after losing everything they had, might be tempted to think that God is behind this. He's allowed this terrible thing to happen to us. But James is telling them, let no one say when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Can you imagine they're wondering, I've lost everything. What are you talking about? In fact, you might be here this morning, whatever you're going through, and you're wondering, what good and perfect gift? In fact, it says this, it is coming down from the Father of lights. It literally means it is continually coming down. So you mean to tell me in the midst of what I'm going through that God is continually giving good gifts to me? You might not feel it, but the truth is, you're breathing right now because God is continually giving you a good gift. You're not just living just because one day your heart started to beat and then God just left you to your own. You're breathing today. You have what you have today. You have the air that he is freely giving to you at this very moment. You're being able to breathe in and exhale and on and on and on. Why? Because the Father of lights is continually giving good gifts to his children. So, don't believe that you are missing out. Don't be deceived. 
Because every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Because when you and I go through difficult times, often we're first tempted to think that God has changed. But this was good news for them to hear. In fact, it should be good news for you and I to hear that, hear me, Whatever you're going through, the God who is continually giving you a good gift, he has not changed. There's no variation. There's no shadow like, oh, no, he's going to be different. Like something's going to upset him. Something's going to cause him to change his mind or his course of action. He's going to be different in his character. Verse 18, of his own will, he sought us forth. He brought us forth. By the word of truth, that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creation. So with that in mind, I want to read you just from a particular book that has been a blessing to me over the years. It's called Trusting God by a guy named Jerry Bridges. In fact, in your notes, there are a few books I highly recommend. And when I say highly recommend, the books that I have put down there at the very bottom are ones that I've read over and over and over again. Every year I thin out my library because every year I go, that was really kind of a fluffy book. And so I just get rid of it. In fact, sometimes I throw it in the dumpster because I'm like, I don't want anyone else to read that. It didn't help me much. And so I'm not going to let anyone else. And so I thin it out. But there's some particular books that they are still on my shelf because they have really spoken to me. This particular one, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges, it says this, can you trust God? The question itself has two possible meanings. Can you trust God? In other words, is he dependable in times of adversity? But the second meaning is also critical. Can you trust God? Do you have such a relationship with God, such a confidence in him that you believe he is with you in your adversity, even though you do not see any evidence of his presence or power? God cannot forsake us because we are his children in blessed union with his son. In fact, he will not forsake you he won't forsake you because he won't forsake his own son. And if you're in Christ, there is absolutely no way he would ever forsake or forget you and I because of our union with Christ. We cannot be caught up, cut off from his sight, but we can be cut off from the assurance of his love when we allow doubt and unbelief to gain a foothold in our heart. So what I want to just talk to you and I about today, and you hear what I said, you and I, me as well, me as well, have you ever let a foothold of doubt about who God is and what God is capable of in your life? As a follower of Christ, if that has ever happened, if it is happening right now, it is the most miserable place you can be in as a follower of Christ. To have a doubt of who God is. Because here's the deal. Whenever difficult times, trials come, you and I have to be really, really careful. And I hope you hear this. 
you and I have to be very careful when difficult times come because it can quickly become a temptation to start doubting God. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're going through a difficult time, but that difficult time can become a temptation to what? Doubt God. That just does what? Adds grief to your grief. And so what do you do about that? Like, how do you overcome the temptation to doubt who God is in the middle of difficult situations? Because the temptation is to doubt God and then to rationalize, to like fix it on your own. Have you ever tried to fix something on your own that like only God could fix that? Have you ever done that? Has, can anyone with a show of your hand say, that worked out well for me? Because if so, please come forward. We want to interview you. <laughs> because you know this. You know that in your own wisdom, own abilities, there are particular things that you will never be able to fix. But yet you get the temptation to rationalize that, yeah, I could probably do this and fix that. You know, all through the Bible, you can see those examples. Here's just one. Right? God comes to Abraham and says, what? Y'all's going to have a kid. Well, let's see. I don't think that's a possibility because of certain things. If you know the story, you know what I'm talking about. And so what happens? They try to fulfill God's promise in their own way. And if you know history and you know what's going on in the world, that did not work out well, did it? In fact, to this day, it's not working out well because they try to fulfill God's promise in their own power, their own wisdom, and it did not work out. It absolutely didn't work out. And so what do you do? What do you do there? Do you ever remember studying Greek mythology? Uh, if, you've, if, if you have, you know what I'm talking about because you uh, heard about all these Greek uh, gods but they were all what? They were just wonky, right? They were like goofy, like they got tempted. They would try to tempt you as a human. Uh, they would throw fits. They would do all this stuff. And isn't it interesting where that came from? It came from what? Human beings' own mindset of thinking that the gods are like humans. In fact, I want you to keep your hand there in James, but you're going to turn in your Bible a little bit. So take a hard left, go to Psalm, if you will, 50, Psalm 50, verse 21. While you're turning there, here's the gist of this Psalm. People, they are doing some things they should not be doing. They are coming against uh, other people. They are slanders, they're gossips, they're doing all these things. But you find in Psalm 50, verse 21. That's kind of cool to hear that. Psalm 50, 21. These things you have done, and I have been silent. So these people, they have done some things that are wicked, and God says he's been silent. And then here's what I really want you to see. The end of that verse says, you thought that I was one like 
you. In other words, because at this moment I have been silent, you might tend to think, well, God didn't see that. Oh, he overlooked it, or it didn't really matter to him. That was not that big of a deal. That's what humans do. They overlook things. They forget things. They overlook things because they're like, well, that's not that big of a bad thing. And God is saying, you thought I was altogether like you. And oftentimes, if we don't watch out, we're tempted to think God's like us. We forget things. We overlook things. We neglect things. And sometimes we pass that on to God. That is a bad thing. And so Scripture helps you and I to understand that God is nothing like you and I. And that's what I want to camp on for a few moments. If you will, back to James chapter 1 in verse 5. So verse 5 says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without any reproach, and it will be given to him. And so here, here's my question. Why would you ask God for wisdom? Why would you and I ask God? In fact, it's a command. You and I are commanded to ask God for wisdom when we're lacking it. And the scripture, the way it is written out is he is assuming all of us lack wisdom at times. Is that not true? We all lack wisdom. And in difficult situations, it's like I'm lacking wisdom for what's going on. How, what are you doing, God? What am I supposed to do? And so forth. And so you and I are to ask God. Why are you to ask God for wisdom? There's a little blank. And this is so elementary, but you and I need to hear it over and over and over again. We would ask God for wisdom because God is always wise. And so for our children, I want you to repeat with me something. I'm going to have you repeat with me this statement, that God is always wise. And I want you to say it like you mean it, whether you really understand what it means or not. Say it like you mean it anyway, right? So children, repeat that with me. God is always wise. You didn't say it like you really meant it, okay? So do it with me again. Children, God is always wise. He's always wise. In fact, if you look at this passage, this is the rich, rich passage of what it says. Have you ever sometimes not prayed? Have you ever, like, not asked God for something? Why did you not ask God for something? It might be this reason. So my mom and dad were not perfect, just like yours. And so there would be times I would ask, especially like my dad something, and he would tell me, and then later I might ask him, and I heard this once or twice in my growing up years, didn't I already tell you that? Did I not already tell you that? Kind of a deal. And so you got to where, maybe this is you like me, you got to where you wouldn't ask dad because you didn't want him to say, didn't I already tell you that? You know, some of us stop praying because we think God's going to say, didn't I already tell you that? And that's why in this particular verse, it says this. First of all, he gives generously. It means literally without reservation. And you know your parents, but hopefully you know your Heavenly Father even better. 
that without reservation he will give wisdom. But here's probably, for me personally, speaks to me more. Because I don't know what your translation, how it puts it, but it says, without reproach. It literally means he will never scold you for asking for wisdom. Some of us have stopped asking God for particular things because we feel like if we ask him one more time that we will be scolded. And yet he is saying, listen, anytime you need wisdom, you come to me. I will, without reservation, give it to you. And this wisdom is a lot like driving. So I know some of our young people have started driving. And the wisdom that God gives is something like as you're driving. It's not like he's just going to dump this huge lump of wisdom on you and like, hey, listen, this, this will do me for the next week, this lump of wisdom. But when you're driving, you are what? Constantly, and I'm looking at some of you that have just started driving. You are what? Constantly making adjustments as you drive. In fact, all of us are if you drive, aren't you? You're constantly making adjustments of turning and slowing down and doing something. It's a constant what? Of wisdom that you are putting towards the decisions that you're making to get somewhere. And so if it's like that, how often would you be asking for wisdom? Moment by moment by moment by moment, you and I are to be asking God for wisdom. Why? Because God is always wise. In fact, if you will, keep your Bible to James, take a left, go to Romans chapter 11. Romans 11, verse 33. In fact, we're going to read two what are called doxologies. A doxology is, uh, you've seen it, it's many times in Scripture, we're going to read two of them. But it's when they're talking about God and His character and His goodness and all that He has done. And all of a sudden, they just break out in a string of praise, a doxology. So Romans 11, verse 33 is a doxology, it goes like this. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Hope you heard what it said there. Turn back to the right. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy 1, 17. Here's another doxology. 1 Timothy 1, 17. Paul again just breaks out into a string of praise and he says this, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What did both doxologies have in common? They praise God for his what? His wisdom. His absolute wisdom in all things. If you will, with a pen, I want you to look over into your quotes there's a quote by a guy named A.W. Tozer. I'm going to have you, if you would, underline something in this quote. Read through it first. All God's acts are done in perfect wisdom. Not only could his acts be better done, a better way to do them could not be imagined. An infinitely wise God must work in a manner not to be improved upon by finite 
creatures. So I want you to take your pen, and in the middle of it, I want you to underline a statement. A better way to do them could not be imagined. There are some of us in this room, there have been things happen in our lives that you would disagree with that statement. Yeah, that statement is a human statement. This is not inspired word of God. A.W. Tozer was not one of the writers of the Bible. And so you would go like, that is not a true statement because there's been things in your life that you would say, yeah, God could have done that in a better way. But the truth is, there's not a better way that it could have been done because I want you to underline the next one. At the bottom of that statement, it says, not to be improved upon by finite creatures. God, in his wisdom, is dealing with you and me according to his unfathomable wisdom. And how he was doing it, you might not understand at this moment. That's why you just keep asking for wisdom to respond correctly. But it cannot be improved upon how he is dealing with you and I. And so, children, would you repeat with me one more time? God is always wise. I want you, if you will, look at verse 13. Verse 13 says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, Well, I'm being tempted by God. God's tempting me. He's doing this. He's causing me to want to go towards evil. He's the one allowing this or causing this to happen so that he'll just make me fumble. I mean, that's what the Greek gods did, right? They would just toy around with mankind and just see what uh, mayhem they could cause. And with that kind of thinking, James is saying to them, don't let it come into your thoughts that God is one who is tempting you, for God cannot be tempted. It's Literally, the only time it's used in Scripture concerning God, it means that he has no capacity for temptation. He has no vulnerability towards being tempted and to do evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. God is not the author of tempting you towards doubt, towards evil. So I want you, if you will, now... Go to 1 John. Here's a particular letter, if you did not know this, about 1 John. 1 John is all about assurance. In fact, the whole Bible is about assurance, right? But this particular letter is about for a believer to have assurance in their life. It's not just about having the assurance of your salvation. It's about having assurance that, of God's forgiveness of your sin. It's his assurance of his love for you. It's an assurance of God hearing your prayers. Because oftentimes we'll stop praying because we don't think God's hearing us. And yet John wrote in 1 John that you and I can have the assurance of hearing God hearing our prayers. And of course, all of that assurance has to have a foundation, right? Like... Someone trusts you because you have integrity. You have been, you've gone a while like they've seen that you can be trustworthy. And so for all these assurances, they have to have a what? Foundation. The foundation, of course, is the character of God. And so 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, just 
starts right out. Here's the foundation of all these assurances. And the, and the, the assurance is this, if you will, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him, and we are telling you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. What did James say? There's no shadow of turning or variation in his character. John 1, 5 is saying what? God is light, and there is not one glimpse of darkness in him. Absolute, total foundation that what? God is always holy. He is always holy. In fact, if you will, there's another quote. I want you to look at it. This guy, his name is Arthur W. Pink. I would encourage you, if you like challenging books, pick up one of Arthur Pink's books. He could write on the shortest verse in the Bible, and the, the volume would be this thick. Jesus wept, and he would have volume this thick. It's uh, unbelievable. I, I had no idea you could talk about Jesus wept that long. But Arthur Pink wrote this, and I'm going to have you underline something. Nothing but that which is excellent can proceed from God. Underline this last statement. Holiness is the rule of all his actions. When you don't know why this is happening at your time of life or whatever, whatever the situation, you can know this, that God is not only wise, but everything he does proceeds out of his character of being light and no darkness at all. In fact, children and young people, oh, pay attention. Children and young people, I want you to repeat this, God is always holy. Ready? God is always holy. In fact, you might just have to say that over and over again to yourself. In fact, I find myself talking to myself a lot. Have you ever heard that, that if you talk to yourself, you're crazy? Guess what? All of us in this room are crazy because we all talk to ourselves. In fact, nobody talks to you more than you do. Here's the deal. Are you telling yourself the truth? Good on you. Come on up here. You're preaching the rest of this because here's the deal. A lot of times we don't. We'll repeat over and over something that is absolutely a lie. And we begin to believe it. Psalm 42 the psalmist is talking to himself, and he says, oh, my soul. He's not just saying, oh, my soul. He's talking to himself. Hope in God. There might be, and I do this often, I just repeat these things to myself because I need to hear it again that God is always wise. God is always holy. Number three, one might think or be tempted to think in a difficult time, God is holding back something that you need or something good. In fact, look at verse 17. Because there are times I know I have, I know you have too, read this verse and thought, mm, I'm not for sure if I agree with that. Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, 
coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And I have said, and you might have said, will today, this week, this month, this season of my life, there's been nothing good from God come to me. I mean, we might never say that out loud, but there are times I have, and maybe you have thought, I don't know, if we sang count your blessings one by one, I don't know if I could write anything down. But the truth is that God is always good. And we're not going to bust out in that song. I don't know if Jonathan knows that song. I might have to teach to him. But the truth is, God is always good. Do you know where disappointment comes from? This will be worth the admission this morning, if you'll hear this. Oh, well, there's no admission, so it's free. Okay. You know where disappointment comes from? Here's your expectation. You have an expectation about something. In fact, every one of us in this room have expectations about something, about someone. We have expectations about God. Some of them are unreal. That's why God gave us his word, so that we would not have unreal expectations. But expectations get real high, but here's reality. So you know what disappointment is? It's the distance between the two. The higher your expectation, and maybe I ought to say it this way, the higher your unbiblical expectation or your unwarranted expectation from reality. Here's the thing why God gave us his scriptures. When you and I read scripture, just think about James, what he's already said, and then think about the letter of 1 Peter. That's called reality. Life in this world, the reality is what? It can be hard. People dying every day. There's sickness. Because of sin, there is tragedy every day. The reality is, this is not what? Heaven, this is earth. And reality. And oftentimes, we'll have an expectation Hey, God hasn't been good, and so we have this expectation God hasn't been good, and here's the reality. And our disappointment with God is this or this or way beyond because we had an expectation. The thing is, oftentimes, for me personally, I have realized my definition of good is not necessarily God's definition of good. I, I think about you growing up with your parents didn't y'all have different definitions? In fact, some of y'all, some of you kids can start amen and if you want. Like, you have this thing that you think about your parents, but it is totally the wrong definition of what your parents consider is good. In fact, you parents, there have been times that you have held back or you've delayed a little longer or you've given something totally different to your children. Yeah. And yet, you would say that was good. 
for those of us that are children, which that means what? Every one of us. There have been times, not only our earthly parents, but our Heavenly Father, that we have thought He has withheld or delayed or given us something totally different that we weren't asking for, and we didn't see it as good, maybe at the time. You didn't see it good at the time. And so your definition is wrong. In fact, last week, I told you about a missionary. His name was John Patton. He went to a particular set of islands right off of Australia, between Australia and New Zealand. New Zealand. And these particular islands were inhabited by cannibals. And he and his wife went there, and they suffered for 41 years in dire tragedy all the time. Attacks were on them all the time. The hut they lived in was burned down several times throughout those years. They suffered over and over and over again. And I want you to listen to what John Patton, his expectation of the goodness of God was not of sure rescue. So just think if you had the expectation of sh that, like, God's going to rescue me from this. He's going to take me out. Like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, like, God's going to deliver me from that fire. And that is as far as you took it. Like, here's what I'm expecting. This is going to be good that God will deliver me from that, and I won't have to go through that. But John Patton, neither did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stop there, did they? Because they said, he is able, but kind of finish it with me. I know it'll be all mumble jumble, right? But finish it with me. But even if he doesn't, I'm still going to not bow down. Because they knew what about God? Either he would deliver them from it, or in the midst of the momentary horror of being burned alive, They'd be instantly in the presence of God. So whether or not. So John Patton would say this in his journal. He says, I considered my prayers of the goodness of God and the peace of God not a sure escape, but the peace that God is good, wise, and powerful, and will do all things well. Jim Elliott, one of my heroes, this past Friday was his birthday. Who keeps up with that? Well, I do. And uh, in January, January 8th, will be the anniversary of his death along with his friends who died taking the gospel. They knew well they could die. In fact, they actually had firearms with them. And someone asked them before they went, are you going to use those firearms if, like, the natives attack you? Oh, no, we're just doing this for our food. We will never use them to rescue ourselves from that. Because in their mind, the goodness of God was not to be rescued from it, but in the midst of it, God would be good. In fact, if you will, look at this last quote and we'll move forward. The goodness of God is lightly esteemed because it is exercised towards us in the common course of events. It is not felt because we daily 
experience it. In other words, for a lot of us, we take the goodness of God for granted, and we don't consider it good. So I just want to give you an exercise to do. All right, here's an exercise for, if you've taken the goodness of God for granted, don't eat lunch after we're done today. Just don't eat it. Fast, fast, fast lunch, fast dinner. If you're still taking the goodness of God for granted, fast the rest of this week. Don't eat. If you take the like goodness of God for granted, just fast something. Like just go without it for a little bit and realize, Wow, that's really a good thing. I think I've really taken that for granted. Just do without it for a little bit to remind yourself that God is absolutely always good. In fact, I want you, if we will, take a hard left again and go to Psalm 8411. Psalm 8411 has been said, it's kind of uh, like the psalmist was writing James chapter 1 because it kind of sounds the same. Psalm 84:11 For the Lord God is a sun and shield the Lord gives grace and glory no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly In other words what God is always good In fact not only children but our young people but how about all the children in this room, which includes every person. Would you say with me, God is always good. God is always good. In fact, you might have to say that when everything about you screams out, no way. God is always good. Here's my last. If you will, look at verse 18. We could camp on this one forever, but verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. Another, uh, another way to put it in like the New American Standard, you might be reading from it, it will say this, in the exercise of his will. In other words, he didn't ask anyone he didn't ask anyone's advice. He chooses because he is all wise. Everything he does is out of a holy character. Everything he does is good. God is always sovereign in everything that he does. In fact, I want you, if you will, this will be the last verse I'll have you turn to, but turn to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 6. In fact, you see another doxology in the midst of this. So as Paul is writing to Timothy, he's been telling him some incredible truths. And as he's ending out chapter 6, and starting in verse 13, it says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made a good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen, ever seen, or can see, to him be honor 
and eternal dominion. Amen. Look over, if you will, at the quotes. I finish with these. These particular last quotes are from the book, Trusting God, and just follow along. I want to have you underline a few things. Nothing is too small or trivial as to escape the attention of God's sovereign control. Nothing is so great as to be beyond his power to control it. But to believe in a sovereignty of God when he when we do not see his direct interventions, when God is, so to speak, working entirely behind the scenes through ordinary circumstances and ordinary actions of people is even more important because that is the way God usually works. It's not usually the parting of the Red Sea. Have any of you all saw that lately? But in everyday life, the sovereignty of God is at work. An infinite mind simply cannot comprehend an infinite, a finite mind simply cannot comprehend an infinite being beyond what he has expressly revealed to us in Scripture. Because of this, some things about God will forever remain a mystery to us. The relationship of the sovereign will of God to the freedom and moral responsibility of people is one of those mysteries. But with the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare and the wisdom of God to plan it and the sovereignty of God to achieve it, I would encourage you to underline this. What do you lack? Why would we ever question? In our trusting God, there is more at stake than experiencing peace in the midst of difficulties or even deliverance from them. Underline this and we'll be done. The honor of God should be our chief concern. So when you and I are saying not only to ourselves, but saying back to God that, God, you're always wise, you're always holy, you're always good, you're always sovereign in all things that you do. You are not just reminding yourself of your great God. You know what you're doing? You're giving honor to Him. When you and I live and believe in a way that we're trusting in the midst of whatever we're going through, that God, you're wise. God, you are holy in the midst of this. I believe it even though my body or my mind or emotions are screaming that you are not good, that you are good. And to top it all off, you're sovereign in everything you do. Father, I would pray for my brothers and sisters. I'd pray that all of us in this room are listening in whatever area of life, circumstance we find ourselves. Some of us might find it difficult to proclaim this from with all of our hearts, that you're wise. But I pray that you would do a work in each of us 
to where our lives would reflect, even though whatever is happening, that our God is always wise. He's always holy, always good, always sovereign. I would pray for the person today that has never surrendered to you. I pray they'd realize today this is the goodness of God. And the goodness of God leads to repent, to turn from their ways. And maybe trying to fulfill their own life in their own way or trusting in something else other than Jesus Christ. I pray today they would realize that it is God alone, the God of the Bible the God whose son is Jesus Christ who died on the cross, that he is absolutely good. They can trust that God. And that he is holy and wise and sovereign. I pray today that you would grant repentance to those who need it today. And ultimately, may our hearts give praise to you for who you are, even if we're not feeling it or experiencing it at the moment. May our lives give honor and praise to you for your unchanging character, our foundation of our lives. I pray this in your powerful name.